Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. What is the most difficult thing you ever had to let go? Let me ask it again. What's the most difficult thing you ever had to let go? Perhaps it was a prized possession. Uh, perhaps something of great monetary or sentimental value. Perhaps it was your dream job. Maybe it was a relationship that meant everything to you, but it didn't work out. Perhaps it was members of your family that would not accept your faith in Christ. Maybe you thought you'd have children by now, or that you'd be married by now, and you've had to lay down those aspirations. The hardest thing to lay down is that which means the most to us. Actually, I think the hardest thing to lay down is not a thing at all. It's a person. Someone who, because of our great love, we would hold on to for all of our worth. Because the prospect of losing them terrifies us to the depth of our being. If we're honest, we would all struggle with the fear of needing to lay down someone we love very much. The fear of loss can be an extremely powerful and devastating thing. You and I have seen that Abraham had a stumbling faith. He had big highs. He had big lows. There was the high of God promising him that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then there was the low of, well, she's my sister. There was the high of the covenant that God made with him. And then the incredibly big mistake of trying to take matters or taking matters into his own hands, trying to accomplish God's will, his way, and producing Ishmael. Now we come to Genesis chapter 22, and the great trial of Abraham's long life, a command from God to lay down someone he loves very, very much. That person is his son Isaac, whose very existence is the result of the miraculous accomplishment of God, the fulfillment of God's promise. What will Abraham do? as he faces his greatest trial. We go to Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, 
take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I, will, that I shall tell you. The event of Genesis chapter 22 takes place some years later from where we were in the previous chapter, years after God has finally come through on the promise that he made to Abraham. Last week, we saw that in Genesis chapter 21, finally the miracle child has been born. The scripture said, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And so after years of no communication from God, out of nowhere, he speaks. He tests Abraham. Now, this is not God tempting Abraham. God doesn't tempt anyone. And this is not God trying to find out something about Abraham that God doesn't already know. He knows everything. What this is is a proofing experience. It's going to show Abraham and us what God already knows is true of the man. But Abraham doesn't know that. Not yet. And we need to enter into his experience as we go through this text. Imagine the shock that Abraham experiences when God tells him what he wants him to do. And what the Lord says reveals more than just the idea of, hey, sacrifice your son. That alone would shake anyone to their core. But what God says to Abraham reveals what God knows of who Isaac is to Abraham. And it's also quite revealing to us. The Lord identifies Isaac with these words, your only son whom you love. Your only son? Wait a minute. Isn't there another son? That's not true, is it? Abraham has a son besides Isaac, doesn't he? What's his name? That was really a robust response. <clears throat> it's Ishmael. And Ishmael was born 14 years or so before Isaac was. Why does God say to, Isaac, uh, to Abraham that Isaac is his only son? Well, you have to remember how Ishmael came about. Because the answer to this question is profound in its implication. Remember that Ishmael was the product of Abraham trying to accomplish God's will his way. And the Bible has a word for that, for, for what it is that whenever we try to do things our way, and that word is flesh. The simple truth is that God calls Isaac your only son because he has no regard for anything that ever comes from your flesh. It's as if Ishmael shouldn't have even been born. So now Isaac at this time is not some little kid. Abraham has spent a long time in the land of the Philistines. And by the time we get to this story in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is a teenager at the very least. Some biblical scholars suggest that he may even be in his mid-20s. God knows exactly what he is calling Abraham to do. 
and that it is a profound sacrifice because of what Isaac means to him. He loves his son. But not only that, all the promises that God has made to Abraham has been married, it's been clearly communicated, are tied up in Isaac, the one for whom Abraham has waited years. Isaac's very existence is the result of the miraculous work of God. Now this same God says to Abraham, I want you to end his life with your own hands. What will he do? What would you do? What would you feel? Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Abraham thought or felt. We're simply told what what he did. But I think it would be a huge mistake for us to think that the man woke up without any conflict, without any turmoil, like it was just another day. No, I don't think that's human. He wouldn't be human for that. I think this has got to have shaken him to his very core, the depth of his being. He's going to obey. But it's going to be the hardest thing he's ever faced. Put yourself in his place. Can you, can you do that? Try to put yourself in Abraham's place. You wake up. Chances are it was a pretty sleepless night. And you wake up, as you often do, And there's a few seconds of blessed forgetfulness of the painful realities of yesterday. Have you ever woken up like that? And then the next thing you know, it comes crashing in on you, right? Your mind kind of reboots. And now you go to your beloved child. And as far as you know, this is the last time he will ever awaken in your home. Remember, you're in Abraham's place. You take two of your servants to accompany you. And finally, you gather the wood, which will be the means by which your beloved child's body will be consumed by flame. And you set out. Laden with great sorrow and burden. And the journey takes three days. Three excruciating days. Now, We know the story, and we also know the great truths of the Lord Jesus' resurrection. So therefore, I find it interesting that it was three days. So finally, you see the place of sacrifice. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Abraham tells his servants, stay stay here. The boy and I are going to go on and we're going to worship. Now in that culture, very often, worship involved the sacrifice of an animal. Not this time. This time it would be far more painful. And far more costly. And... Worship? Really? Can, how do you think of expressing your love for God in the midst of those kinds of circumstances? 
in the midst of facing the kind of situation that you're facing? Well, the answer is kind of simple in a way. See, worship has absolutely nothing to do with our circumstances and has everything to do with who God is. It is never dependent on our situation. So just before they head off to the mountain of sacrifice, Abraham says something to his his young men who are with him that is another thing that's profound, and I think it's easy to miss. Did you pick it up? He says, I and the boy will come again to you. He lies. Does he? Is that a lie? Hmm. The author of Hebrews gives us some insight into this. Looking at this verse, the author of Hebrews says this, Abraham considered that God was able to raise people from the dead. That didn't make it any easier for him. Where would Abraham get such a thought that God would raise him from the dead? Do you realize this is the first inference of a concept known as resurrection in the Bible? God could do this. God could do all kinds of stuff. You know, what bugs us, what's hard for us, isn't so much what God can do, it's what he will do. And I think Abraham's reasoning may have gone something like this. God God promised this child Isaac, and he said that through him my offspring will be named. Until he does whatever he can do, I'm going to do what he told me to do. And that is commitment to God for whatever God has promised. So as they set out, Abraham, the father, lays the instrument of his son's death on his son's shoulders for him to carry. Does that sound familiar? It's a picture of what our heavenly father would one day do with his son. As Isaac carries his instrument of sacrifice, Abraham carries the instruments of death. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. In the context of what is happening, what Abraham knows, this conversation is torturous for him. It doesn't seem that Isaac really yet knows what's going to happen, but Abraham does. And what is particularly poignant is the manner in which Isaac addresses him, my father, to which Abraham responds, I am here, my son. You know, sometimes our father leads us into difficult situations about which we know very little. Isn't it good to know that we do not go through those situations alone, ever? No matter what, He is always our Father, and he will always find ways to say to us, I am here, my child. And Isaac's question 
confirms the fact that he knows that there's a sacrifice that's going to take place. He just doesn't understand where the sacrifice is. And again, Abraham's response is laced with deep meaning. He doesn't just say, Isaac, God will provide a lamb for us. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say God will provide a lamb for us. He says God will provide a lamb for himself. What? There's deeper meaning here. Remember in the Gospel of John how the, how the Baptist points to Jesus? Remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, not as a burnt offering, but as a crucified one, is the Lamb of God. An offering for us that provides forgiveness of sin and cleansing from sin. But did you ever stop to think that Jesus Christ was also an offering for God? Jesus Christ didn't just die for you. He died for God. Because the Bible says that he is the atoning sacrifice. God provided for himself the lamb. Your Bible might call him the propitiation of our sin. It means the means by which God's wrath against our sin is dealt with. God will provide for himself the lamb. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The terrible moment has arrived. There is nothing else to do but to prepare the place of sacrifice and to prepare the sacrifice himself. Isaac does not resist his father. Do you notice that? I think it's another picture. Another picture of the Son of God who of his own initiative surrendered himself into the hands of his loving father. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And God is watching. And God knows what is about to happen. He knows Abraham's agony and he knows his intention. He also knows how the story ends later on in that there will come a time when he, our heavenly father, will engage in a similar act and there will be no one to intervene. I want to hit the pause button here. Can you, in your mind's eye, can you picture this? Here's Abraham, knife upraised, pause there. Up to now, whenever he's faced a serious situation, he has looked to his own resources to get out of trouble, to accomplish God's will his way. In those circumstances, he comes out looking like a loser. He was, his was a stumbling faith. Why does he not stumble here? He's committed. He's going to do it. Something has changed. He has changed. Unlike other situations in the past, there's no deception, there's no acquiescence, there's no duplicity, there is just the obedience that comes from faith. The question is, what has happened with this man that in the most fearful, difficult circumstance he ever faced, he had, he had his greatest victory? What happened? Something happened. 
Do you realize that what's recorded here in Genesis chapter 22 is the reason that the New Testament lifts up Abraham as the example of faith? The man of faith? What happened? Well, one of my favorite authors, Major Ian Thomas, in his book, The Mystery of Godliness, describes it like this. It's eloquent. Listen to what he writes. Quote, At God's command, Abraham took Isaac, bound him, laid him on the altar that he had built, and took his knife to slay his son. With actions far more eloquent than words, Abraham said to God by what he did, You promised me Isaac. I didn't see how you could do it. So in my unbelief and in my folly, I tried to accomplish your will my way, and I produced my Ishmael. Now you tell me that I am to slay my only son Isaac, in whom you have promised that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Oh God, if I slay him, I don't see how you can do it. But now I am committed to you. If slay him I must, slay him I shall, even if you have to raise him from the dead. You see, the first principle that this drama shows us is that our greatest trials reveal the depth of our commitment. That is what the raised knife in the hands of Abraham shows us. Whatever is going to be beyond that is in the hands of God. And the next word is my favorite Bible word. But. Aren't you thankful for those? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Someone once noted that whenever God speaks to men, he always has to say their name twice. He never does that with women. (laughs) Abraham, Abraham. Simon, Simon. (laughs) Had to get a little levity in there. He says, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your your son, your only son, from me. Abraham's actions reveal the nature of his commitment to God for whatever it was that God was going to be committed to. And now God goes into action to intervene. This is the plan all along. Ian Thomas later in his commentary on this event says this. In so many words, God said to Abraham, thank you, Abraham. That's all I wanted to know. Now you can throw away your knife. Abraham has in fact been stopped from offering his son by the angel of the Lord. Very often in the Old Testament when you see that language, what you're looking at is someone very unique. As a matter of fact, it is the second person of the trinity the eternal son of god the person who would come to this earth later be born in a manger and die on a cross we know him as the lord jesus christ but he speaks as god you didn't withhold him from me and notice that god's opinion of abraham's actions make it seem as if he actually did it You did not withhold from me. The author of Hebrews picks this up again. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, was willing to offer Isaac. That's not what it says. By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. As far as God was concerned, he did it. See, it matters what goes on in here, doesn't it? It is particularly poignant 
again and again to be reminded that God tells Abraham to do this thing knowing that he, God, will intervene. That he's doing it to show Abraham and the rest of humanity what true commitment to God looks like. Yet at the same time, he knows that there will be a day where no one will intervene for God's offering of his only son, whom he loves, his Isaac, the darling of heaven, crucified, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and and behold, behind him was a ram. I don't think this has anything to do with the Super Bowl, by the way. (laughs) Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the, uh, the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What Abraham said to his son on the way to the place of sacrifice has now come true. God has provided for himself the sacrifice. The ram seemingly comes out of nowhere. And we know that it's the provision of God as a substitute for the child of promise. Abraham memorializes the event by naming the place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. And that memorial had an impact up to the very day that Moses writes about this incident. It became a colloquialism. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to Pastor Dave about this. The area where God tells Abraham to go, the area of Moriah, many Bible scholars believe that that area includes a hill called Calvary. It's another picture, a foreshadowing of the great sacrifice that would take place many centuries later. Jehovah Jireh has provided the Lamb of God on a mount called Calvary as a substitute for the person who should have died there, me. And in the midst of his greatest trial, Abraham learned something about his God, something he would never have learned about God apart from the trial. He learned, I believe, to a lesser degree what all of us should know very well from Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him freely give us all things? If God did that, you fill in the blank. Abraham's commitment to God for what God had committed to him in the promises that he made leads him to the obedience of faith. And that results in the provision of God. This story tells us first and foremost that Our greatest trials will reveal the depth of our commitment. Here's the second thing. Our great trials can display God's great provision. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returns to his young men and they arose and went to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The drama is over. The conflict has ended. 
and the offering has been made. And God speaks once again to Abraham and for the last time. This is the last time the scriptures reveal God ever saying anything to Abraham. And I think there's something rich in that too. I think it might be something like God saying to Abraham, my friend, there's nothing else we have to work out together. My purposes for you and for the humanity that will be blessed in you have come to the place of culmination. I will always be with you and you will see me face to face one day. Enjoy your life and your family. The fact that Abraham's faith had times when he looked like a winner and times when he looked like a loser never changed something. You know what it is? The character of God. God is faithful. He keeps his word. No one person's success, no failure. Your greatest success, your greatest failure will never challenge the faithfulness of God. Ever. The last thing God says to Abraham is a reiteration of the first thing he said to him all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. He just expands on it. His promise to Abraham that he will bless him, that in all the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. And because Abraham reckoned rightly with the character of his God, he came out a winner in the greatest trial he ever faced. And the story concludes just as Abraham said it would to his servants. Because guess who comes back down off the mountain to join, rejoin those servants? Abraham and the boy. And they went home. And they all lived happily ever after. Well, I think. There's some stuff with Isaac later, but... But I'll tell you what, they may have went back home, but they didn't go back the same. I think they were forever changed. So the third principle that we see is that our great trials can reveal God's great faithfulness. Regarding Abraham's offering of Isaac, the great Bible teacher F.B. Meyer wrote these words, quote, the only scene in history by which this story is surpassed is when the great father gave his Isaac to a death from which there was no deliverance. The God who told Abraham to sacrifice his only son did so knowing he would not allow Abraham to go through with it. And he also knew that there was a time when he would sacrifice his Isaac for us out of his great love for us. Question, what will you do with such a God? First and most importantly, if you have never placed your life into his hands through faith in Jesus, you can do that this morning. Our heavenly Abraham put his Isaac on the cross in your place and mine so that we might know forgiveness and partake of the life of a resurrected Christ. And if you need to know more about that, see Pastor Ken, see me, we'll be up front. But I know that most of us in the room have already made that choice. And so what do we take away from this? I want you to identify with Abraham. Put yourself in his place. Each of us have a, fellowship, a relationship with the living God. And he knows what's best for us. You've committed yourself to him for your future. After you stop breathing. Commit yourself to him for your present while you're still breathing. And remember something. You are not to be committed 
to the will of God. Do not commit yourself to the will of God. Because in doing that, you can try to accomplish it your way. We're not called to be committed to the will of God. We're called to be committed to the God whose will it is. To do the other is to be falling into the trap of flesh and sin. To commit yourself to the God whose will it is will connect you to his provision and it will accomplish what he wants his way. It will reveal his character. God called Abraham to surrender what was the result of God's miraculous activity. You follow that? What he tells him to lay down exists only by the miraculous accomplishment of God. That's what he tells Abraham to lay down in a place of sacrifice. And guess what? God calls you and I to do the same thing. To take that which is the result of God's miraculous accomplishment, whether it's your children or yourself, and to bring it to the same place. You and I have had a a, a union with Christ. We are not what we were. Our old self was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And that's what God tells you to lay down. Present yourselves to God, meaning offer yourself to God. As what you were? No, he dealt with that. Offer yourself to God for what, as what he's made you. Present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. We are to offer to God the new creation that he has made us in Christ for him to do whatever he wants with. And we do this for the same reason Abraham did. He was committed to God for whatever God had promised he was going to do. And that's the key to freedom to victory I think most of us have something or more importantly someone that we're holding on to that our good good father is calling us to surrender as an act of dependence and commitment to him what or who you love most is the hardest thing to lay down And so, my brother or sister, what will you do? What are you holding on to? Who are you holding on to? Are you willing to lay your Isaac down and have God provide in that place? There is a great victory and freedom by bringing that which we love most to a place of surrender. I asked my friend Marianne Kiernan to write about her experience regarding her son's who were, in her words, lost in the world of drugs, alcohol, and rebellion going back to their early teen years. Listen to some of what she wrote. I had done everything to try to save my sons. Looking back, I recognized that I was trying to be Jesus, trying to be their savior. I thought it was my job as mom to fix my kids. I lived in constant fear that they would overdose. Someone would die because of them, or they would rot in jail. I had no peace. I was depressed. My anthem was, why me? I'm a good person. I came to realize I needed God, whatever that meant. One of my mentors said to me that my sons were only on loan to me from God. They were his, and I needed to give them back to him. 
And when I first heard that, I admitted that I had questions running through my mind. I don't even know what that means. How do I do that? I can't. I love them so much, I have to do something. What if they die? What if they're in a car accident and kill someone else? What if they spend years in jail? What will my family say? What will our friends say? There was a battle raging in me. Over time, God began to show me through various ways just what surrender meant. I began to realize that this is what God was calling me to do. He could not work in my son's lives because I was holding on too tight. Surrender didn't happen overnight. It was a process. At first I would say, they're yours, Lord, only to take them back and try to fix them all over again. But a day of surrender came. I gave them to the Lord and everything changed. Not my situation. Not my children. Not my circumstances. I changed. I found I could be at peace when there was chaos. I experienced freedom from worry. I found I wanted more and more of Jesus. It deepened my prayer life. I was taking my sons back less and less and leaving them on the altar more and more. And it was during those times when they were on the altar that I had peace. I didn't have children who struggled with alcohol and drugs. But I had to surrender them too. You know, that's what codependency is. You know that. It's when you make your children a substitute for God and then you hold on. It doesn't have to be your child. It could be your parent. It could be any, any person you love. But ultimately, the key to freedom is to do what Abraham did. You know why? Because there's life on the other side of the place of sacrifice, of the, uh, the, of the place of offering. There's a life there. When you bring the, to that place that which you love most, it's a life of peace. It's a life of victory. Even when the circumstances don't change. If there's one thing to take away from this chapter, it's this. Commit yourself to God for all that he is for you. Now, when you walked in this morning, you should have received a blank card. And so while the worship team leads in a song of surrender, I would like you to prayerfully consider who or what you're going to put on that card. Think of it as leaving him, leaving that situation or person in the place of offering. And as a matter of fact, as you leave, I invite you to put it in the offering boxes, in the offering baskets that are outside. And reckon it to yourself as leaving that situation or that person at the cross. There is a new life on the other side of the cross, isn't there? There was for Jesus, and there is for us. It's a life of freedom and victory. And so I'm going to invite you to stand. The worship team is going to lead us in a song. You think about that. Put it on the card. If you can't write while you're standing, then write it down and then stand up, okay? Whatever works for you. And then I'll close in prayer, okay? Okay.